While I was locked up, I got moved three times within this facility. But one time, I got on that famed green bus. And I had to go to a, an area. There was like 24 guys, and it was called a turnaround. And I was stuck in there with 24 guys, 23 hours a day, and only leaving for food. That was after I got sentenced and I knew when my end date was going to happen. I had about 40 plus days when this happened in my life. You know what happened as I was going through this time? I didn't really have much to do. I was just counting down the days. And so I think God put on my heart that I was going to read the Bible. I was going to read the whole Bible in 40 days. And I mapped out the pages. I looked at the pages and I did the math and it, it was like, 62 pages a day for me to get through the whole Bible in 40 days. But listen, I'm not a fast reader, so it took me about three hours. And one of my jobs as a, as a prisoner under the care of California was to stay up at night and watch over the guys while they slept. And while I was doing that, I was actually opening up my Bible and I was reading it every night for a couple hours, trying to complete it in 40 days. And it was kind of like a book in Acts because I was, I was looking at like two or three in the morning and I would follow this light from outside and I would read the Bible. And it was pretty crazy. And about 20 days into reading, about the middle of the Bible, I got to this verse I didn't even know how to pronounce it at the time. I still am probably not good. Ecclesiastes, Estes, I didn't know what the name of the Bible, the book was. But I just finished Psalms and I just finished Proverbs. And I felt like, man, it's starting to make sense because some of the history I didn't understand. But, but Psalms had some things that tugged on my heart and Proverbs had some repetitive wisdom that started sinking in. And so I'm like, maybe I am getting this God thing and maybe the Bible is going to make sense. And then I turned to this book right in the middle of the Bible. And the second verse in chapter one goes like this. It says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. I had no idea what that meant. And honestly, it got me spun out of my head. So before we get started today, let's pray. Father, we claim you as Lord. We ask you to take over our mind and soul so that you are king. Lord, we turn over our life to you. We turn over our heart and, and mind to you and ask, Lord, that you use this time to change us from the inside out. We thank you for your blood, Lord. We thank you for your eternal life. And we thank you for the resurrection power that you give us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you're going to maneuver deep within us. Use the Bible to show us what's right and what's wrong and to grow us to be equipped by you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So listen, I'm reading this, and I wish that somebody told me that if, if, what scripture meant, because here's the kind of the thing my head's on. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verse 16 and 17. I read it last week, and I think I should be reading it every week as we get started. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. That's the purpose of this text. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare us and equip us to do every good work. If I knew that verse, 
Maybe it would have made more sense. But honestly, when I read this in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, my head started to spin. I started thinking, maybe this is the secret and the truth of the Bible. Maybe it's all meaningless. Maybe the whole trick to the Bible was read the very middle and you open it up and you find out everything that I've read and everything in life is meaningless. My mind was racing. Is God real? Is, is, is there truth in this world? Is this Bible really real? And it kind of took me to a bad place and it took me a long time to get away from that. Why is this in the Bible? What's the purpose of this? And honestly, I didn't have anybody to answer. There was no Google. I was locked up. And back then it was AOL and it was dial-up. It would take you about 30 to 50 minutes to log on. But here's the most important part that you need to know. I just kept on reading. I kept on reading. Today we're starting a new series. We're going to take some surveys of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to talk about vanity, vanity, vanity. Maybe your text says the vanity of vanities. We're going to understand and dig into what that means. And the truth is, we don't talk about this in church. We kind of gloss over this stuff because we really don't want to dig in to the vanities of life. Here's what vanity means if you don't have a working definition in your head. It means excessive pride, emphasize excessive, excessive admiration of one's own appearances and achievements. And it reminds me of a message a couple weeks ago Jeremy gave about plaques on the wall. We get so obsessed and into this excessive mindset that it really kind of drives us into the negative. Plaques on the wall aren't always negative, but they can be. Here's what Samuel Butler writes. It's a really cool verse. And he's a, he's a poet and an author. And he writes this. And I really think this hits home for us. It says, the truest character of ignorance. So if you want to know the ignorance of the world, here's the characteristics. They are vanity, pride, and arrogance. The truest characters of ignorance are vanity, pride, and arrogance. And all of that is in the definition of vanity. We're talking about this new sermon series called Vanity, Vanity, Vanity. And, and, then, and then the um, ideas are in the spirit of Jeremy Kay's. This word is Havel. It's with a V, but it really means, uh, it maybe it's spelt with a V. It really means mist, vapor, or mere breath. In this book, there's 12 chapters. It's done 34 times. That means it's the theme. Because there's something we need to learn through this word havel or vanity. Here's something that you need to also understand or realize. You need to read this book in one sitting. Meaning it's 12 chapters. It's actually easy to read. I'm dyslexic. It's hard for me to read. But this reads very easily. And you need to read it as a whole so you don't miss out and don't kind of get lost in what it's saying. Because it's not always a positive message. This isn't one that you just open up and go, I'm going to read a chapter in Ecclesiastes and try and have God speak to me. Because it could take you into a bad place like it did me. Really what you knew is read it in the whole and then you go back and see some places to really grow and learn in your life. This is poetry and it's beautiful and if you read it, I promise you, you will get a lot out of it once you know the answer. Havel or vanity is a mist. James chapter 4 verse 14b says, what is your life? What is life? You are just a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. That's what life is, 80 years, 70 years, 60 years, 90 years. But that's really a mist compared to eternity. So let's dig in. And what we're going to do today is we're going to let the word of God kind of speak for itself. 
as I started looking at it, I'm like, there's so much to say here, but the actual reading, especially in the NLT, speaks a lot better than I can. So let's dig in, and I'm going to add some commentary or some opinion where I think is needed, but let's just dig in. Verse 3, here's what it says. It says, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? This is a critical part because under the sun is spoken three or four times in this text, three or four times in the next chapter, and constantly through the whole Bible, uh, through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And what it really is trying to say is life without God. What is life without God? That's really the meaning that they want you to understand from the Hebrew perspective. When we look at life, we look at it through a human lens because we're human. We're not spiritual. We need to be spiritual, but we look at it from a human lens and it gives us a perspective. It gives us a, 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 um, a bias. Jeremy would say, I think there's 24 biases, 27 biases. We look at it through those biases and what we find that it's all meaningless. It's vanity, vanity, vanity. You know, Nietzsche or Camus, some of the great philosophers in the mid 19 or 20th century, 1940s and 50s, they say some of the things like this. Life is a joke without God. And I think that's what we get as we dig into the text. Life is a joke without God, they say. The truth is, we're just dung and dirt apart from God. Somebody was saying as I was, I was uh, watching a message about this, they were saying, we're just walking human fertilizer, waiting to get put back into the ground so something can grow over us. Without God, life is a joke. Let's dig in and see more of what we're trying to uh, understand as we dig in. Verse 4 says this, Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. This is crazy to me. And somebody might say, oh, Jeff, that's not true. We have global warming or whatever's going on. And I'm like, yes, maybe that might be true today. But if you look back in history, in the 70s, when I was in grammar school, and that ages me, do you know that they were teaching about an ice age that was going to come by 22,000? Uh, they were teaching ice ages, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Look it up. Look at the textbooks. And then about 1992, 93, 94, they switched because it got hotter. And now it's about global warming. What I'm trying to say is we might think the earth changes, but really it's saying that it really doesn't change. Maybe it's just heating because it was cooling for a little while. Verse 5 says, the sun rises and then the sun sets. Then it hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and the wind turns north. Around and round it goes, blowing in circles. Here's another one. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. This is a really cool place. You can see the poetry part of this text. But life is cyclical. The sun chases itself around and then hurries to rise again. But the idea here is that one day it's just going to run out. It's going to burn out like a light bulb and then the world ends, right? That's kind of what we believe. Nature is in this repetitive cycle. That's what we see in this text. And the modern day view of science is just it. We're repetitively turning until the lights go out or until the water runs out and the world is ended forever. That's kind of how we view the world in the scientific realm. It's interesting. How we view the world and how we view the wind, it's meaningless what the text says. How about the wind recently? Man, the wind has been driving me crazy. You, you can't figure it out. You can't understand it. You know, it goes from Santa Ana, from off the ocean. It takes my golf ball out of bounds when I hit it. It's crazy. There's really no meaning. 
and water. Californians, we know water. I can't believe we let river water run into the ocean in the first place. Let's store it, but we don't. But this text talks about water running from the rivers into the ocean and then back and forth with condensation. It's this whole scientific thing. But is there meaning? That's the question. Or is it all Havel, vanity? Verse 8, you can see where the the mood kind of shifts. Everything is worrisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. Doesn't that sound like Paul in Philippians? No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Oh yeah, Paul knows this text. He understands contentment. We just went through this whole process. And here, here's the essence of that statement there. No matter what I hear or see or know, it's all boring or useless. There's no purpose. Nature is in this kind of rut and it's just spinning out of control. And one day it's going to fall off the rails, off the axis, and it's over. That's really what we believe. Doesn't that sound weird? There's got to be more to life. Verse 9. History merely repeats itself. It has, all, it has been done all before. Nothing under the sun, there's that verse again, is truly new. It's tr- nothing is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is truly new. Highlight, underline. Nothing is is truly new. Some of the things in the message that I'm saying, it's not new. This has been said for thousands of years. Verse 11, we don't get, we don't remember what happened in the past and in the future generations. No one will remember what we're doing now. This is my favorite part in chapter one. I love this part because we always think like something new is happening. When we were younger, I used to think, oh man, we're doing cool new stuff like nobody else in the world. But as I got older, I realized, nah, man, they were doing that stuff in the days of Noah and Abraham. They were doing that stuff in David. And we, we just ask, we, we, we just know that nothing is really new. And that's important for us to understand. We have a faulty view of history. We have a faulty view. We really don't know much about anything. The day that I really realized what history was, the day that I really understood what history meant to us as a society is when I really started to grow and change. When someone said the idea of history is to not repeat it in your own life and in, in our society, that's when history really made sense. But here's the question. I, I was at a conference several years ago and they were talking to senior pastors and they were saying, are you really going to be remembered a year or two out of your ministry? If you left and somebody else was teaching, would they know Jeff Rodriguez in two or three years? Probably not. No matter if the building was named my name, most people forget pretty quickly. We don't really look backwards what happened a year or two ago. Maybe COVID will be that stain on our our, our resume, but I don't know. Now the kind of the letter is going to change. And I remember being on a mission trip in Mexico and there's this guy named Travis Mullen, really important guy to me. He's one of the reasons I became a pastor. But I remember still kind of looking back on that first time that I read this in jail. And I remember being with him in the car for about an hour. We were going somewhere in this mission trip and he was saying, you got anything you want to talk about, biblical stuff? And I'm like, yeah, what is this What is this book, Ecclesiastical or Estes? I have no idea, once again, how to name or, or, or uh, give that proper name. And I'm like, what's the meaning of this book? And you know what he did? He just gave me one verse, 
and they goes, that's the answer. And the conversation was literally like two minutes. And I was kind of bummed because I'm thinking, this is, this, we could talk about this for hours. But he had, it was really the simple answer. And it made sense to me, but I thought there was more to it. I had to do some of my own personal study to really understand the grasp. This book is the essence of Solomon. The author is trying to get who Solomon was and how he lived his life. And we see that in verse 12. He says, I, the teacher, was the king of Israel and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself, highlight circle, that's important, to search for understanding and explore wisdom, uh, everything done under, the, under heaven. I explored by wisdom everything done under heaven, the same idea of under the sun. And then he gives us this tragic verse. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. What? This is what we're reading? This is how we're growing as Christians today? Verse 14, I observed everything going on under the sun, life without God, and it really, it's all meaningless. It's vanity. Like chasing the wind. Here's what's happening. Solomon, who was a young king, at 17 gets the kingship and by the time he's 25 he's like Justin Bieber. You remember how little Justin Bieber started? He was like 14 on YouTube and by the time he was 19 he was the biggest pain in the butt on TV and on YouTube. He was so full of himself and now he's a little bit older and he's changed. Solomon is that same way, young and full of all kinds of excitement, wisdom and knowledge and so much wealth. It ends up hurting him. But he's like, I'm going to do my own research because I have the resources. And I'm going to live my life like no other. And I'm going to share it with the world. And that's what we see in this book, Ecclesiastes. He devoted himself. The Hebrew word is the, the, the heart. And, it, and it's really a, an important word. The, the personhood of the Hebrews was the intellect. They're, where they got their, their, their personhood, that's a good word. I guess I should stick to it is from intellect. It's really from the belly, their gut reaction. That's who they were. Today's personhood or the heart of the human today is the mind. I was talking to Jeremy and he really made a great point. He's like, today, if we lose our mind or any capability in our mind, we really are nothing as a human today. It's quite different than it was back in what we call the ancient world because they would honor people that had gone through a lot of stuff and they say that man or that woman that's older in age must have great wisdom and intellect. We should honor them. Today, it's all about what you can do with your mind right now. Very interesting. He's saying, I'm devoting myself for understanding and knowledge. Doesn't that remind you of the garden when they bit the fruit and all of a sudden wisdom and knowledge became real and evident and that's what we're looking for? But it's, it, 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 it's false. It's not true. We need to realize this, that we are finite and God is infinite. Just because we bit the apple and we're, or the fruit and we're, we're, we're searching for wisdom and knowledge and power and we want that, doesn't mean we need to understand God. He's infinite. We are sinners. He is holy. He is the creator. We are the created. We're the creature. We don't know God. We don't know what he's doing. We don't really understand him. And maybe even in heaven, we'll get to know as much as we possibly can. But there's a chance we might not know him fully. I don't know. I hope we do. It's interesting though. We have this innate desire to have understanding and wisdom and Solomon is trying to understand this and give us some insight through this writing. 
Here's what verse 16, uh, 15 says. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. One of the things, I say this all the time about the NLT, it really gives the essence of the Hebrew meaning here. Some of you says something about a crooked stick can't be made straight. That's what we're saying here is something that's wrong can't be fixed easily. A crooked stick can't be put back the way it's supposed to be. It's just how it is. Verse 16 says, I say to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the other kings in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and to volley. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. This guy's like any, nobody else. He has the resources. He's like Bessos or uh, uh, you know, some of the other rich people in the world that are billionaires, they, they have so much resources, they can do anything. And he's probably greater than them. Wisdom without God or wisdom just under the sun is meaningless. It's all vanity. It's Havel. And it seems like Paul knows this because Paul writes something very similar. First Corinthians chapter 13, you know the love chapter? In the beginning of that, he says something very similar about love and, and, and if God is love, here's what it says. It says, you know, wisdom and understanding. If I gain all the wisdom and understanding, but I don't know love, I don't know God, it's useless. Paul knows this book. He knows the vanity of life. He understood what we think today. That if I just get an education, oh man, I need a master's or a doctorate degree to really make myself the best in this world. That's the idea of today. The American dream is get a master's or a doctorate and my life is going to be perfect. The truth is you could have a master's degree or a doctorate and you could still be an idiot. You could still be a mess. You can still have mental illness or addiction. You could still go bankrupt doesn't fix anything. It's just a plaque on the wall unless it's really being used for the glory and, and, and goodness of God for the most part. I guess not for the full part of that. There's the last verse in chapter one. It says this, the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. That is such practical wisdom there. Socrates says something that's very biblical in nature. It says, the more I know, the, real, the more I realize I know nothing. The, the Bible talks about the day you realize you know nothing is the day that you know a lot. Once you realize that I don't know that much in the world, you realize that you understand a lot about the world. Man, when I was 18, I was brilliant. I thought I knew everything. As I've gotten older, I realized, man, I'm dumb. And I have so much to understand. There's a guy named Chris Rezima who sings this song called 17 and he sings this song about being 17 and how, how smart he was and how moral he was and now that 10 years later he's 27, how hard it is to get back to where he was at 17. It's a really cool concept. I think that's what we see here. Sometimes the more we know, the more grief and the more sorrow it brings us. So that kind of is the end of chapter one. And we could stop there and get a lot out of it. But I really believe there's another part to it. I think the first two chapters should be read together to give us the full concept of what we're trying to do today. Understanding, understanding vanity or Havel. Chapter two talks about futility of pleasure. It talks about the wise and the foolish. And then it talks about the futility of work. 
it kind of switches from this educational mon mon uh, mantra to this let's have fun mantra. You know, that Chico State mantra, YOLO baby. Ecclesiastes is world famous. It's probably famous, it's one of the things it's famous for is it witnesses the experience of futility. Futility as a definition is pointless, useless, or ineffective. The uselessness of pleasure, the uselessness of work, the, the idea of wisdom and knowledge really becomes chapter two's kind of launching off point. So let's dig in. Verse, uh, chapter two, verse one says, I said to myself, come, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found this too was meaningless. Now he's switching and saying, man, I did the whole knowledge thing. Let's kind of change and do something different. Knowledge without God is bankrupt. Pleasure without God, it's just boring. Now, I know you're saying, give me money and wisdom and all the women or all the men in the world and, and, and I'll, I'll try and make it happen. Sin ha is fun for a season. You know that. I know that for sure. I had some great times. Sin is fun for a season, but it's cyclical. It, it, it always cycles back to chaos, destruction, and distance from God. And you've got to pay the consequences. You've got to deal with the consequences of this YOLO lifestyle. Sin's fun, but it always comes back to getting right with God. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, So I said, laughter is silly. What, does, uh, what good does it to seek pleasure? Verse three, much after thought, after much thought, sorry, I decided to cheer myself with wine. Now he's like, hey, let me add something to the mix and see how this uh, works. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience only the happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. Don't we believe that in this world that adding a cocktail or a drink or a drug or a pill really is the solution? How many shows do you watch and in the middle of the show they pour this bottle of something or they crack open a beer or they've got this wine on a balcony and that's the, the meaning of life. Doesn't that sound like today? Let me add some wine. Let me add something to my veins or to my, to my brain to make this world a better place. I don't like how I look. I don't like my job. I don't like where I live. But if I add something, the blue pill or the, or the red pill, maybe my life will be better. This world is in this rut and we're looking for this magic solution, this magic cure, this magic diet, this magic pair of pants or shirt or haircut or something that's going to change me. There's got to be something else, right? Verse 4. We see it change. He goes to enlarge the material things in life. I tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. That'll work. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. He tried all the things. Let's build. Let's make. Let's do. I mean, You've built something. You've maybe done some painting or something, a kind of a project. It feels good. 
Then it says in verse 7, I bought slaves, both men and women, and others born into my house. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who have lived in Israel before. Now it's like, now I got people with me. I, I own some, I have some, they're working for me. I've got people underneath me. I've got more flocks and herds than anybody in the area or anybody in the world. It continues, verse 8. Now I collected great sums of silver and gold and treasure of many kings and providences. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. That's an interesting word. I have everything a man, you can add a woman if you're a woman, that they could desire. Here, he's gotten everything uh, material-wise. I've got everything a person could desire. And this is the conclusion. I'm going to do whatever I want, whenever I want, and, and, and this is who I am. He's like, it's about sex. Here he talks about this word concubine. In the Hebrew, the word concubine is like a, a, a poodle. It's a show poodle or an ornamental poodle with all its funny haircuts. In, in, in the terms of the Babylonians, it actually meant men and women demons. But here, it's a sexual thing. You know, in our life, we think sex is it. We don't even want to talk about sex in church. It's the one thing we don't talk about. But here, it's like, man, if I just have the right person to have sex with or the right people, maybe it's about more people. That's what we see with Solomon. He had 3,000 wives and 1,000 concubines. Concubines or pines? Like porcupine? I don't know. But it's about the right person with the perfect sexual thing will make my life right. Is that true? It's not true. It's a lie that we hear, but it's not true. He's bringing us this report. This, this, this uh, author is trying to give us the idea of who Solomon was. And he's giving us this report, this marketing report. This is the analytics of his life. A life of self-gratification, a life of selfishness, extreme indulgence. This is what you get. More money, more power, more wealth more knowledge. You know what happens to this guy? He ends up following all kinds of little gods. All those women that he wanted to have sex with, all those ones that he wanted to take partake in, led him astray. Happens all the time. Humans are complex and they complicate other humans. You know one that does that? You know... I don't know if God is that complicated. I know he's deep and wide and, you know, he's got all these words, but really listen to the message. Love God, love others. Trust and obey. Love God, love others. If that's all that you learn from the Bible and that's the way you live your life, it's pretty simple. Love God, love others. Trust, obey. Man's like, let me tell you my doctrine. Let me tell you my idea of grace. Let me tell you my concept of the resurrection. Blah, blah, blah. Humans complicate everything. You know that person in your life. Don't look at them if they're sitting next to you. We tend to mess everything up. But it, I, I, I know, don't try, I'm not trying to uh, un, um, downplay how big God is. I don't think the message is all that uh, complicated. Get man out of the way, and I think we could really grasp it a lot better. Verse 9, so I became greater than all who lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed. Basically, every time he had an opportunity to use his mind, it never failed. 10 says, I wanted 
anything I wanted, I would take, and I denied myself no pleasure. This is what I'm talking about. Self-gratification. I want chocolate. I want sex. I want uh, that piece of property. I want to go to the beach. I want to go to the mountains. Anytime he wanted something, he took it and did it. And at the end, this is the report. I found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for my labors. But as I look at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it's havel, meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. There's nothing really worthwhile anywhere. You know, the Santa Ana winds are hilarious. Have you ever, like, in, in a windy day, like, dropped a napkin or a wrapper and you start chasing it or a cup and it's rolling and as soon as you get closer to it, the wind blows it and next thing you know, you're a half mile down the road and you can't catch that piece of paper or whatever? That's what it says to me. Every time I read that, it's like chasing the wind, this piece of paper. And yeah, I don't want to litter, but man, I've gone a half mile. I'm out of breath. I need to get back and go. It's like chasing the wind. It's meaningless. Vanity, vanity, vanity. It's all meaningless. Life is difficult, and then we die. I mean, that's really it. And honestly, this week's been tough for me. There's been a friend of mine that's close to death, lost another one. It's just hard. But we still have this mindset that's just not enough. I, I just want to do it. I want that Nike logo. YOLO, baby. You know the YOLO thing has kind of subsided the last five or ten years? The millennials aren't doing YOLO anymore. You know why? They're five years after the YOLO mindset, and now they're paying the bills for, oh, you only live once, and now the credit card bills or the debts come in or the, the issues with sin are coming back to haunt them. That's gone. It was fun for a while. It's not really a way of life. We have been sold a bad bill of goods. Satan is laughing because he's selling us on some janky crap. He's manipulated us into thinking that all this is good, but really it's just evil. It's separating us from God, and it's really not benefiting anybody at all. It's all meaningless. The next part talks about wise and foolish. Hopefully you're one side, not the other. But there's been a lot of foolishness going on. You know, this whole COVID season, this whole political season, there's been so much stuff foolishly talked about and preached about. And I'm done with it because at the end, I know it's all meaningless. If you continue on chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, there's a section on politics in there. You get it. It's all meaningless. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved in it, but it can't be driven by the gospel and by the front end of what you're trying to do in your faith. Here's what he says. So I decided, verse 12, to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness. For who can do better than I, the king? Solomon, the concept is like, I've got all the, all the ability to do this. Nobody has the resources that I can. And so I'm going to do this. I thought wisdom is better than foolishness just as light is better than darkness. It's so practical. It makes so much sense. For if we for if the wise can see where for the wise can see where they're going, but the fools can walk in the dark. Trust me, I've been a fool for many years and I've been able to walk in the dark and stumble around and even get to the place occasionally where I'm supposed to go. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. This is crazy. Both will die. 
So I said to myself, since they end up in the same, uh, since I will end up as the same as the fool, what value is all this wisdom? This is all meaningless for the wise and the foolish both die. Truth. This is so meaningless. Don't, uh, this, the wise will not be remembered any longer than the fools. In days to come, both will be forgotten. This is so true. When's the last time anybody said anything in the last two or three years about Steve Jobs? You remember the first 90 days, all the things that were online about how great and wisdom, his company doesn't even talk about him anymore because they've got a new CEO leading him in a better direction, making people way more money than this guy did. Nobody talks about Steve Jobs anymore. They don't even care about him in Apple. How about Stephen Hawking? Do they talk about him? We used to talk about him all the time in the Christian debates. He's gone. It's better to be smart than dumb or stupid or foolish. Yeah, I understand that. And I'm trying to grow up to be more smart, to be more responsible and less foolish. But in the end, we're all going to die. This is so practical today. This is so relevant for us today. It's just kind of flowing right from the book of Philippians into this next series. And I hope you're grasping on what God is trying to teach us as we head into Easter. This is preparing us to move into this new season. Things are changing rapidly. And maybe we're going to get back to normal some pretty soon. I feel it. Hopefully you do too. I was reading a commentary and it was really funny because it was talking about at the end of our life, worms eat us. And it said that in death, the worms are going to eat the dumb brain and the, and the wise brain, and they're not going to know the difference. It's just going to be brain, and they're going to eat it no matter what. That is so crazy to me, and it's kind of funny in the same way. Here's what verse 17 says. So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. It's Havel. It's like chasing that piece of paper in the Santa Ana gusty winds. You're not going to get it. I'm, bad. I'm sad for the, uh, our, our California coastline. Hopefully it doesn't harm anything. But there's sometimes you just got to pull back and it's like, I'm chasing the wind. I'm not really going to get anywhere. And this last one talks about the uselessness or the futility of work. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in, in detail. But here's what it says. And this is the, the final part. It says, I came to hate all my work uh, here on earth, for I must leave it to others, everything that I have earned. This is, this is going to get good. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will be in control of everything that I've gained by my skill and my hard work under the sun. How meaningless. The people I'm going to leave my money and my inheritance to, how do I know what they're going to do with my money? So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all of my hard work in this world. This is really crazy to me because the hovering parents that grew the millennials, the, the helicopter parents, they're, they're working to make their kids better. Has it really worked? This generation has, has got some issues and struggles, and I think they're saying it's because of the parenting. How about this? You're, 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 you're saving up and working hard every day to save a little bit of money, maybe buy a house, get some 401k, some retirement, and at some point you pass away, and then your kids get your money? Do you know? Listen, I am part of people's life 
uh, people's families after they die. Every, uh, every inheritance, 95%, maybe 99% that are giving hundreds of thousands of dollars away have been a curse. There's a great family that I know right now that aren't talking. It usually takes a year or two to get back to doing Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's again, no matter how good or how Christian the family is, money causes issues. It's not a blessing. Most of the time, it's a curse. Spend your money. Live your life. Give God all the glory. Verse 21, some people work wisely with knowledge and skill. Then must leave their fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. What? That's crazy. I'm going to work and then I'm going to give it to someone who hasn't earned anything? This too is meaningless. It's a great tragedy, it says. So what do people get in this life for all of their hard work and anxiety? Listen to this. They're... Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. And even at night, their minds cannot rest. It's all meaningless. I'm staying up at night. I'm, my, I'm getting arthritis and I'm doing all this work and my eyes can't see because I'm on the computer. I'm, I'm working tirelessly to grow this, this, this wealth. And I'm going to give it to someone else. Here's what the author says. So I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized all these pleasures are from the hand of God. Highlight, circle, underline. You know, I'm reading through, about a week or two ago, I was reading Kings, and I'm reading this chronological Bible study right now, and now I'm in Chronicles, and you see these kings that get something from their father who was the previous king, and then they destroy it and blow it and most of the kings do evil in the sight of God and you know two or three of all these kings of of Israel and Judah basically blow everything that was given to David and Solomon that's just how life goes verse 25 says this for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him that being God God gives wisdom and knowledge and the joy to those who please him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes that wealth away and gives it to those who please him. This too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Sometimes the Bible just speaks for itself. And I think it did today for us. Hopefully you got something out of it. Let me tell you the end of my story on February 26th. And this is a kind of a private day. I don't really ever share it with anybody. But it's an important day to be, because it was the day that I was released from jail. And usually, it's a quiet day to reflect. But as I was reading my Bible that 40 days, and I was coming to the end of my day, I was on February 25th, and I was frantically worried because I came up 100 pages short. And I was reading... And some of the guys, they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm not going to make my goal. I've got to read like all day to make sure I get to the 100 pages and complete my task that I put on my heart that I needed to get done. It felt like I was going to let God down. And this guy came up to me, and I don't even think he was a Christian. If he was, he sure didn't act like it, talk like it, didn't care about the Bible. But he said something that, never ch- that has changed me forever and I'll never forget He said, maybe those 100 pages you're not supposed to read so that when you get out, you'll read them tomorrow 
and this weekend. And the truth was, I took that advice, I put my Bible down, and I left those 100 pages. And in three days, Sunday morning, I went to my first church service. I completed the Bible before I went to church. I just kept reading, and I've never quit. If I would have just gave up at the beginning and said it's all meaningless and didn't dig in and didn't ask questions and didn't try and get a better understanding, I would have missed out on so much. All of it's meaningless unless it's with God. Having that gratitude and that blessing takes everything that we're doing and doesn't make it vanity. It makes it something to honor God and glorify God. Augustine writes, and I'll close with this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the creator who is made known to us through Jesus Christ. It's by God, through Jesus. That's the only thing that can fill our heart. And today, you and I get to give God the glory and make whatever's meaningless, meaningful in him. Will you pray with me? Will you really pray and say, Lord, whatever I put before you, whatever is meaningless, change so that it can be meaningful in you. Whatever sin I need to let go, whatever issues I'm hung up on, let them go. On the 26th was just two days ago. As a friend's dying, as a grandfather's died, all doesn't matter. What matters is we're here, we're alive, and we have God, and we have another day to live the hope out for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we claim you as the Lord of everything. In you, Lord, the, meaning, the meaningless things, the havel, the vanity things can be turned into your glory. I know that you've done it in my life. And I pray that anybody that's watching online right now will feel the power and the authority and the glory of God. Holy Spirit, take them to that place to, to, to right-size them and to change them and to disciple them and grow them as you've done with me and you're doing right now. And Lord, if there's someone lost in this meaningless lifestyle, living a vain life for everything but you, if they're there, Lord, Holy Spirit, speak to them and encourage them to say this prayer. It's a prayer of salvation. And all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth a simple prayer. And I promise you, your life will change especially if you keep reading. It goes like this. Repeat after me. Father, forgive me. Come into my heart, into my soul, and be my Lord and Savior. You died upon the cross for me. And it was so meaningful. And you rose three days later so that I can have eternal life, which is the greatest purpose of life. And I ask you right now to fill my life with your Holy Spirit my mind, my body, and my soul so that I can have purpose and meaning all the days of my life. I love you, Lord. Say it again. I love you, Lord. Amen.